are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is sponsored by Great Northern Bow Company. If you're a bow hunter, you're a descendant of a very old and very long line of independent, skillful, and resourceful human beings that reaches back to prehistory. You may not think of yourself as a rare breed, but you are. Bow hunters who use longbows and recurve bows for their hunting are a breed of part. They form a personal connection with their hunting equipment, especially their bows. At Great Northern Bow Company, they design and build every bow with you in mind and with respect for the long and noble hunter-gatherer lineage we are all connected to. They build hunting bows, bows designed to make you the very best bow hunter you can be. How do they do it? By paying attention to what really matters in a bow. Stability, smoothness of draw, reliability, performance, refined design, and by using carefully selected materials. Their bows have an understated beauty and refinement of appearance that will make them hold their appeal for a lifetime. And they still build their bows one at a time by hand. Now, Great Northern Bow Company could build fancy bows, they could build souped up bows, or they could build bows and make impressive sounding claims about them. That isn't what they do. They build real world bows for the real world of bow hunting. If there are any claims to be made, you will be the one to make them. And you'll make them based on the confidence and success you'll experience through many years of hunting with your Great Northern Bow. So consider making your next custom bow a Great Northern Bow, and in the meantime, be sure to check out their website at gnbco.com. Well, Nick, how are you, man? I feel like it's been forever since I sat down behind the microphone. Yeah, you know, it's weird. We talk like every week, and you just not being there for like over a week was just bizarre a little bit. But, you know, while you were out there running around in Wyoming, um, I... I ended up, you know, publishing Life and Longbows, and and it's been doing well, and I've been getting great feedback, and so I was kind of doing my own thing while you were doing yours, and it looked like you were having a lot of fun. We had a we had a blast, you know. It's uh, we uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about the hunt because uh, Tom and I are planning on actually doing two podcasts. One just around the hunt, we actually recorded some audio a few nights while we were out there uh, up on the mountain. And we also want to do one as a follow-up to our, our gear discussion we had. But, uh, you know, we, we, we came up short as far as animals are concerned, but man, we, the experiences so far out trumped the, the, the amount of, uh, the amount of critters we put on the ground. It's not even funny. We, we could have filled a bus on the, on the does and, and other animals that we just, you know, we just didn't have tags for, but we learned a lot about our equipment. We learned a, a lot about ourselves along the way. And, and we learned a lot of things to, to, to research and find out before we go back. So, I mean, I honestly, I couldn't have asked for any better trip. No, the country looked beautiful enough, and I mean, it sounded like you got close to some animals anyway, which is uh, which is a win in my book. So we we did. We got really close to a lot of animals, and that's is all I'm gonna say about that, as far as Gump said. But <laughs> for now, <laughs> we we, uh, we we managed to catch a bunch of fish. Um, like I said, it was just a it was just a, a great trip, and and we're gonna we're gonna definitely go into a lot more about it you know in a in a few weeks um so so everybody stay tuned for that um we got a great guest tonight before we get into that i do want to remind everybody that we do have the 
giveaway going on right now for the uh, two packs of bone broadheads. Um, to enter into that, just leave us a five-star rating on review or rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And then also shoot us an email to podcast at traditionaloutdoors.com, letting us know uh, the ID that your review is, is linked to. We'll be doing that drawing on September 22nd. Um, the winner will be announced around that day or the next day on social media, and then that winner will also get a shout on shout out on the episode that will be released on September 30th. So you only have a, a little bit of time left, so everybody, you know, get out there and get entered in that for some for some great broadheads. Um, with that out of the way, with us this week, uh, I've, I've actually been excited about this since before I even left for Wyoming because uh, I reached out to. Uh, Mr. Charlie Lamb, who's on the other end of the line, before I went on my hunt to Wyoming, and I've just been really looking forward to to getting back and getting you on the show. How are you doing this afternoon, Charlie? I'm doing great, Steve. Just great. How are you doing? Uh, as you've heard, I'm doing pretty good. I didn't want to come back. <laughs> I didn't want to come back from the mountains and have to go back to work, but unfortunately, that's kind of what makes the world go round. But uh, well, it is. I I really can't complain. It was it was really great to be completely unplugged for over a week. We actually uh, we were we were so high up in the in the bighorns that we had zero cell service, and the only link we had to to everybody back home was a, a sat phone we could send a text once a night just to let everybody knows we were we were still alive but uh uh yeah I, I really can't complain you uh you getting cranked up for for your hunting season to start up here pretty soon absolutely i've uh sharpened my broadheads about four or five too many times and uh retuned and tuned my bow and silenced and checked the brace height and just all the little things that have been taken care of already for two months, but just you know, just something to keep me occupied until it actually gets here. And I think you were saying we were chatting just a little bit before we started recording. the The weather out there is really not conducive to bow hunting right now. Is that what you were telling me? Well, it's mid eighties, and that's the forecast for the next week, and that's as far ahead as I can, you know, as as they're willing to say, and I. It's not as nice as it could be. You know, the mosquitoes are a problem and, you know, you get all sweated up walking in and just, it's just a lot more pleasant once the, the evenings get cool and and you're not, you know, like I said, you're not dealing with summer like conditions. Sure. Plus, you know, plus if you get an animal down and, uh, seems any, anymore, I seem to shoot most of my animals in the afternoon and. You know, if you have to leave them lay overnight in the, the warm temperature, there's always the risk that, of spoilage, and, and that's never a good thing. I hear you. I've, uh, you know, it was, it was a shock being up in, in the mountains and, you know, low 20s at night and, uh, you know, get up near 70 or low 70s during the day, and then you, you come back to, to Georgia, and it's just – it's stifling hot so i'm gonna actually try to get out a little bit maybe this weekend because our season opened last saturday but like you it's just been so hot i I really haven't been all that excited about getting out there yet right i used to uh i used to go to wyoming every fall for oh in the later years for antelope elk hunting got to be a little bit much in my old age you know my first it was my knees and now it's my back and just one physical thing or another that makes it's 
sets up limitations. If you're chasing elk, you know, they take a lot of uh, effort. Sure. <laughs> so, so I've mainly been, uh, had been hunting antelope, but I haven't even done that now in the last two years. And I, I really miss being out there. I was, I lived in Western Wyoming up near Jackson hole for 10 years. And so that's, I've still got friends out there and ranch property that I can hunt and, and, uh, just kind of know <laughs> when to zig and zag and, you know, all the things that you learn and, about a place when you hunt there long enough and uh i i really miss it uh yeah i can definitely appreciate it i went i hunted antelope out there in 2016 and um i really did not expect an area to uh grab my my heart the way it did i honestly just couldn't wait to get back it seems like it's been 10 years instead of two years but uh right. it'll be a it'll be a regular thing for me going forward i, I just i really love to really love the country but we're getting a oh, yeah. we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves. Um, I mean, we're we're gonna we're gonna have to back up a little bit. We're uh, I want to I want to spend a little bit more spend a little bit of time talking about uh, uh, better days of hunting when it wasn't hot, I guess, and really go back in time. <laughs> and you know, I I I know a, a good bit about um, you from your from your book and and from Trad Gang as well over the years, but. You know, for those that that haven't read the book, um, you know, I guess spend a little bit of time telling us about how you got your start as a as a bow hunter um, and and really what started your journey. Oh, gee. Well, I guess uh, I'd have to say that it, it goes back as far as I can I can possibly remember. There's always been a bow of some kind in my life. Uh, when I was just a boy, I would take binder twine and cut a limb off of a tree or break a limb off of a tree, and I'd fashion a bow and just uh, use whatever limb was halfway straight with the knots and everything and skin up my knuckles shooting shooting those old sticks across that stick bow. And it's I've just always had a bow. And as I got a little bit older and in, into my teens, I think I went... Uh, on an actual deer hunt for the first time when I was, I think, 13. And I had a 30-pound Ben Pearson Pinto bow, Colt. It was a Colt bow, semi-recurve, what we called them back then. It'd be a reflex deflex now. But uh, saw, actually saw a deer. We only got, went for two days. My, my best buddy and I went and uh, actually saw a deer. We, it, it never got close enough. To, to where we could have a, a prayer of shooting at it, but that's probably just as well anyway because we, we weren't that effective yet. <laughs> so, but uh, from then on, it just snowballed. You know, as I got older, I got to be more mobile. I actually shot my first deer before I was licensed to drive here in the state of Missouri, and it, it was a pretty big deal. The, in the St. Louis Bow Hunters. Uh, where I was a member, that first deer I shot that year, they gave an award for everybody who shot a deer. They had this award for shooting a deer. And there were three of us, a guy named Don Fallon and a guy named Earl Hoyt and myself. Now that's the Earl Hoyt from Hoyt Archery Bows. 
And uh, in the St. Louis Bowhunters, we were the only three people that year that killed deer. And it was a fairly big club. I mean, had to be 50 to 70 members. And it was back in those days, deer were pretty hard to come by. Pretty hard to come by. It made the newspapers and you know, everything. And my, uh, <laughs> the, the local papers in the county where I, I killed it. You know, Archer kills deer and, and all this. And, uh, so it, it was a, a real big deal and really put the hook in me, of course. And uh, I, do, I wasn't getting any support. I went out and I, I told the story in, uh, in my book, but I went out and I shot this deer. I was coming out from the stand in the morning and I walked up through the brush, walked up to this, this woods road that I'd used to, to get out there. And it went across a little slough, and there was a culvert in the road. And as I got out there, I'd set down everything I had. I was carrying my bow. I was carrying a thermos. I was carrying a flashlight. I was carrying... I just had my hands heaping. <laughs> and I sat everything down, going to get everything arranged. And I looked up, <coughs> and there's <coughs> Excuse me. There stood a deer not 15 yards away just looking at me actually there were i think there were three of them and she stood there and let me take the shot and from the time i put pressure on the string until they were running away through the brush i have no recollection not any and i went i went back got my best buddy told the adults who were around and they just they just laughed at me they thought, well, yeah, right. You, you, you couldn't have done that. So my buddy came with me, and we went out there and just almost immediately found blood and uh, tracked it down. I don't think she went 50 yards. And then we had to go all the way back, get the adults to get a car, <laughs> and come out and pick up, the, pick up the deer, load it in the car, and bring it back to where everybody was. My folks had a summer place. And there were a group of cabins along the Mississippi River. And and I can't remember from the, I remember the story from the book. Was it your mother or your friend's mother that actually drove back with you to get the deer? It was my friend's mother. Yeah. And, uh, and as a kind of a side note, he and I uh, hadn't seen each other since, so oh, I guess about 1970. And within the last three years, he and I have re reunited and he's one of my best hunting buddies again. That's awesome. Now, what what year was this in, Charlie, when you shot that first deer? Do you remember? Yeah, it would have been 1962. Wow. So there, I'm assuming at that point in time, there probably wasn't a huge population of whitetails, were there? There was not. Uh, if It wasn't unusual to hunt for a month and not even see a deer. In, a, in the areas that supposedly had a lot of deer. And uh, it's just the way it was. Uh, and my, I remember my grandfather, and you know, part of my storytelling comes from my experiences as a boy listening to my grandfather. And I had a, I had a bunch of uncles, and on a Sunday afternoon after dinner, they'd all sit around and tell stories. And Grandpa would talk about the time he shot a deer down by this big oak down along the creek. And uh, the turkeys that roosted in that same oak and, and all these animals and none of the uncles, and certainly not me, had ever seen a deer 
anywhere on that property, and I'm not sure anybody in that side of the county had ever seen a deer or a turkey at that at that point in time. But I, I'm happy to say that now, all these years later, the place is loaded with deer. There's turkeys everywhere, and it's nice. the The creek doesn't exist anymore. The creek was uh, it went dry, and that was part of the story. Was he shot it, but had a weighed the creek and it got got wet up to the knees and all that and i'd never seen a drop of water in that creek as you know in the few years that i had been alive at that sure. point it had, it had gone dry and is still dry today so they say it went underground i don't know huh interesting so yeah. after uh, after that that first whitetail i'm assuming well it sounds like you were kind of hooked even before that that first that first doe but I'm sure after that you were probably just hook, line, and sinker at that point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I had a – my dad, my pe- my folks weren't real sure how into it I was, you know, and whether or not to let me spend any money on good equipment, you know, because, you know, in case I – it was just a passing fancy and I got over it and didn't, you sure. know, here they, they would have spent money on the bow and everything, but – the, uh, my dad bought me a Bear Kodiak Magnum in 1962. Still got it. It's right on the wall. I can see it hanging over on the wall across the room. And uh, it was uh, 40, 42 pounds at 28 inches. And we put a a quickie quiver, which or not a quickie quiver. It was a hush mm-hmm. bow quiver, which was like a quickie quiver. It was, except that it was all molded plastic, held four arrows, didn't have a cover for the broadheads. And, uh, and it's probably a good thing. I didn't know how to sharpen broadheads real well <laughs> in those days. They were sharp enough to do the job, but not like I do today. Right. All right. Uh, cut my fingers to ribbons because i cut myself several times on the on the exposed broadheads on on that bow quiver but uh it's it's, it was a great little bow great little bow and and as it turned out i'm happy to say that it uh wasn't just a passing fancy and and that became apparent to my folks after not too many years so I, and I know there's a lot that happened between now and then, but I kind of want there's a there's a lot of things that that I want to focus on, um, and and do want to come back to the book as well. Now, I guess before we move forward, um, you know, do you still have copies of the book for sale, or is that something you would have to go through a a reprinting if there was a lot of interest, or uh, where do you? Stand? If there's enough interest, I can very easily have uh, have books to ship within three days. Oh, awesome! Uh, oh, cool. So, one of the uh, it's it's also available on Amazon. I put it on Amazon through the urgings of a friend who said, "Well, you're you know you're sitting on a gold mine and blah blah blah." <laughs> and it hasn't exactly been a gold mine, but uh, but anyway, it is available on uh, on Amazon. A Bow Hunter's Tales by Charlie Lamb. Uh, so you know that might be the easiest way for people to get a hold of it, and we'll be sure to put some some links to that in the in the show notes for you, uh, Charlie. But the reason that you know the 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 book for me was somewhat special. I remember when you actually started the. Uh, uh, I guess you'd call it a fundraising to raise money to actually, you know, print the book and 
there was a post on on trad gang about um uh, if you bought an early copy of the book not even it doesn't even matter i don't remember what the the dollar amounts were but you know you get your name printed in the book so forth which was pretty cool um right and right. and uh I, I believe i read the book cover to cover in like two days after i got it it's just just a fantastic reading for anybody that hasn't read it it's just a very entertaining book and i do want to come back to that but i i really want to it seems like the the catalyst and you can correct me if i'm wrong but a lot of the catalyst for the book was you know fostered through uh the forum trad gang um right. and i know that you were one of the the founding members um uh very early on in trad gang so you know i guess Tell us a little bit about, you know, those early years of, of Trad Gang. You've obviously been involved with it for a, a long time. And maybe from, you know, in your words, you know, how you how you came to be sort of recognized as the storyteller of Trad Gang, because that's really, you know, where everybody got to know you from. Right, right. Well, uh, I got into uh, computers kind of kind of late. And uh, I was, oh, I guess I was in my 40s, something like that. And I l looked around for anything archery, and I, I stumbled, uh, stumbled upon the, the leather wall. I'd ha had a friend, and he talked about it all, all the time. And so I finally looked it up, and I got on there, and I read everything. I mean, every word that was written on that, <laughs> on that forum, I read it. It didn't matter whether I was really interested in it or not. That's just... That's my love of archery. And time went by, and there were some internal problems between Terry Green and, and the administration. And, and I took Terry's side on it all. So uh, basically, they told him if he didn't like the way things were run, to go start your own website. And he did. <laughs> so, so he invited me over just as soon as he got it up and going, and, and uh, I was member number eight. And we, uh, you know, he didn't know what he was doing as far as starting a website, and I, you know, I was just a guy that got on him and and read, and and I would comment if people had a question that uh, that I could answer, then I would I would contribute, and as time went by. And it made more friends. I thought, you know, here's a chance for me to tell a hunting story because I love telling telling stories. And I thought I can write down my stories, see if people like them. If they don't like them, then I'll, you know, I won't do it anymore. Well, it turns out they were pretty well received, and you know, got a lot of a lot of kudos and pats on the back, and and so I. I just kept at it. As far as I know, there may have been other uh, other forums where people did that to the extent that I did, you know, because they tried to supplement the stories with photographs and, you know, and, and not just uh, like a little sketch. I really kind of fleshed it, fleshed the stories out and, and made them something. And I became known for uh, uh, the cliffhanger. I'd, I'd leave people hanging. And make them wait for the next day to, to read more. And a lot of guys groused and complained and carried on, you know. And, and I think it was a mostly good-natured. There were a couple, I think, that were pretty upset about it. Gene Wenzel calls me a carrot dangler. <laughs> 
but uh, but I found it was uh, that that was the way my grandfather told a story. He would he would sit and he would talk and tell this story. And at some point, you could count on it. At some point in the middle of that story, just when it was getting good, he'd stop and reach in his pocket and pull out his pipe and his tobacco. And there wouldn't be anybody say a word the whole time he was loading that pipe and got it lit and he shook, he shook something terrible. <laughs> so he'd get, get a stick match lit and it just about burned his fingertips by the time he finally got the, <laughs> the pipe where it was, it, it was smoking. But, but everybody had enough respect for the man to where nobody interrupted. Nobody else started talking. They let him finish, and he would get his pipe lit, and they'd take off with the story to right where he had, had left off. And so I tried to, that's what I tried to do in, in my writing on Trad Gang, and I, I kind of think that I was one of the first to really get into the storytelling, and, and I hoped, and I believe that it worked that way, that it inspired people to tell their stories because it's, you know, it's great when you got to, it's a, like being around a campfire, like you and I were talking earlier, you know, not, not just one guy does all the talking and all the storytelling. Everybody has their stories, no matter whether you think you do or not, everybody's got them. You know, it's just a matter of, uh, feeling confident enough to, to tell them. And so that's, that's what I think I accomplished by that. And I think it kind of helped, uh, kind of helped trad gang to grow it wasn't just a question and answer forum you know there were some some hunting stories to inspire guys and uh you know nothing you know nothing gangbusters i'm no fred bear i'm no gene winsel i'm you know i'm just a guy uh been a working man my whole life raised two kids all by myself you know so i've been pretty limited as to what i could hunt but every chance i got i i got away and hunted and well, I, it just, I, I will tell you, I think you definitely succeeded because I know, um, some of the, some of the successful hunts I've had over the years, I actually went on to trad King with a, with a purpose of telling the story much the way you're talking about, you know, and, and right. even had on more than one occasion, not only for stories that I've submitted, I've seen story with it. Uh, seen it with stories that Tom has submitted on Trad Gang, Tom Jorgensen, uh, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and others where people would say, you know, something along the lines of, I smell a Charlie Lamb story or something like that. <laughs> so it was, yeah. you, you definitely succeeded. Yeah, I see that every once in a while and it makes me, makes me feel good. It makes me feel good. And it should. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not ashamed to say it. It's, uh, you know, it's very satisfying. Very satisfying. Can you can you elaborate a bit about uh, how the uh, Bow Hunters Tales book came about? Um, you know what was what was kind of the catalyst for that? Well, I told uh, I told all these stories on Drag Gang of, of at the time my m most recent stuff. I wasn't really reaching back into the ar archives. I'd always wanted to be a writer, outdoor photographer, so I'd been working at that since the '60s, and I had a I had a file of of stories that I'd written and and hundreds and maybe even thousands of photographs, 
And, you know, back in, in film days, the photographs, it was more difficult to get a good quality picture with a film camera, even though I had a good camera. And, uh, you know, getting in, the people kind of uh, uh, gave me confidence to reach back and get those stories out and put them together. You know, I kept saying, well, I've got this and I've got that. And I just lacked the confidence to put it all together. And finally, if people gave me enough grief about it, I thought, well, okay, I don't know the first thing about publishing a book, but uh, I've already got the material. I've got the photographs. It's just a matter of uh, assembling all of it and getting a publisher to put it into book form. So that was that was it, and, and it was those it was those guys whose names appear in the back of the book that really were responsible for me publishing that book because because they were the ones that were on me. They hounded me and and you know encouraged me and rooted for me and all the way through. And without them, I doubt seriously that book would ever have been printed. And I'll, and a Sadly enough, a lot of those guys aren't around anymore. You, you, you know, some of them kind of, they, they uh, what do they call it? When they stay, stay back, don't say anything. Right, they're, right. Yeah, they're lurkers or, or whatever. Sure. And, but a lot of them have just gone on to other things. And I, I, I kind of think that's the way of it with uh, uh, internet forums. In the beginning, you know, after... In the beginning, guys all hot and heavy for it, and then as time goes by, you know, and unless he's really got the fire, he'll gradually kind of drift off to do other things, and and I think it's just a natural human response. Well, and unfortunately, and several of us have been talking about that. You know, the social media has definitely um, had an impact on on forums. You know, a lot of the a lot of people have have really kind of switch more to focusing on social media, Facebook and those kind of things rather than, than the forums. And, and in all honesty, I think the same thing's going to happen to social media over time, or at least the, the more common ones like Facebook, there's something's going to replace them. And then that'll, that'll phase out. It's just a, a cycle right. we go through. Um, but you know how, and, and I honestly just, I don't know this. I've, I've, I've read some of your stories on, on, trad gang obviously and i've read uh everything that you've got in the book i've never seen any um duplication of either so i guess you know were there any stories that were actually in the book that were at one time also posted on trad gang or was, were they completely there, original uh, there's a couple yeah there's a couple of them uh and i tried not to only do trad gang stuff because the guys that were encouraging me to do the book had already read all that. And I didn't want to just publish something that everybody had already read. So, so by and large, most of it is original work that, uh, that had been sitting around sometimes as long as 35 and 40 years, you know, in, in, uh, in hard copy for the most part, I had to, uh, digitize everything you know get everything on the computer and but actually once i got started with the computer i found it much easier to write than you know the 
the old typewriter days and carbon paper and multiple copies sure. and and all that you know it was just the the ease of editing and uh, you know putting everything together the, just the way you want it. it it was just so convenient that i really uh i really got off on on it and and transferred all my hard copy stuff over to computer files so and you know it's funny i i actually write not a lot, but I write a good bit for both, you know, my simply traditional website as well as a couple of different publications, and some of that gets reprinted. But you know, and I and I actually work in in the IT industry, so I'm I'm always on a computer. But when it comes to my my hunting logs and my hunting journal, I I actually prefer to write it, and then you know I'll take the the good stuff that actually ends up, you know, becoming a, a, a story or an article, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put that in electronic form, but the majority of what mm-hmm. I still capture on a, on a hunt or, a, you know, a, a, a journal hunting journal, I still write everything in, in notebooks and composition books. So. Right. Right. I do, I do journal a little bit, probably not as much as, uh, a serious writer would, <laughs> but, uh, you know, a serious writer always has a little notepad in his pocket and a pencil, but, uh, but I do keep a, keep journals on, on occasion. And, but for the most part, i I get on it as soon as I get done with a hunt, just to make it last longer. I sit down at the computer and I just start writing. I don't have anything in mind. I just, I just start. And usually it flows for me, and it's almost like I'm—I'm I'm not only composing the story. I'm—I'm I'm a an observer. I'm reading the story as it lays out on the computer screen in front of me, and that—that's the way it happens for me. And you know, I—I kind of kind of envy that a little bit. I—I actually can't do that. I almost have to have something that's the the trigger or the catalyst to kind of, you know, that, that'd make a good story. And then I'll sit down and once I start writing about that one thing, then it flows. So it mm-hmm. actually flows so well, I'll, you know, I just write way too much and I'll have to go back and, you know, start cleaning it up and making it make sense for, you know, a reader. But right. I have to have a reason to actually sit down and start writing. So. Right. And I found a long time ago too, that a guy can, can be too critical of his own work and you know you can sit and edit and rearrange and polish and and all this stuff till the cows come home if you want to uh, but it's never I don't th- I I tend to feel that it's never uh, never better than your first copy you know you get rid of your spelling errors and your typos and the and all that stuff you know that's a second editing and never more than three. By the third one, it's it's a whole nother, it's a whole different thing. By the third time you've you've been through editing, it's a different piece of work. I agree with you, Charlie, and I, I really had to combat that um, when I first started because I would sit down and type. I was mainly blogging when I first started, and I'd sit down and type a line over and over and over again, and it would take me two days to do a blog post. Um, right. You know, and and then I would. I'd sit there and I'd overanalyze it and I'm like, no, that's not good enough. And, you know, that's not good enough. And, and it would right. take me so long to do a piece of work. And then I, I switched to journals because then I found that I would write 
and I would just write and I would just go. And since I had, it, it took, since it made my hand hurt and I didn't want to go back and cross things out and do it again, I would just keep going. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, <laughs> fix this later. And then I would copy it down afterwards and retype it. And then it would really kind of take shape after I did that. Right. But sometimes you can get lost in front of a Word document or something because you can sit there and it's got that handy delete button and you can just go, no, I can say that better, you know, and then never get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I'm always, the one thing I always watch out for is I don't repeat myself. I hate that. Sometimes I've found if the story is long enough, there's a good chance that somewhere in there, there's going to be a paragraph that I had, I put in on the first page and it's showing up on the sixth page or something like that, you know? So <laughs> I watch out, for, I watch out for that. That makes me a little nuts. Yeah. I try not to get, cl I, cl mine's cliched lines. Like I'll, I'll ah. say something like something I like to say, and then I'll say it again and I'll reread re something. I'll say it like three times and I'm like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta stop doing that. But right. But, yeah. Right. Yep. Um, uh, Charlie for the, for the stories, let's, you know, I guess let's just focus on the, on the book really. And I, uh, obviously there's, there's one chapter in the book and you'll, you'll probably know immediately which one I'm talking about when I ask this question, but there's one chapter in the book. I know this to be the case, but for the majority of the, of the stories that you've told in the book and even on trad gang, I guess, I guess it doesn't really matter. You know, do you, uh, well, there's several ways you can ask this. Do you, do you tweak those stories? Do you elaborate, um, do you embellish? I guess is a way to, <laughs> on those stories. Or are they pretty much? Are they pretty much factual? Um, no. Except for, again for that one that I know you'll know which one I'm talking about. I, I do know which one <laughs> you're talking about. And, and no, I've uh, I try to stay just pretty true to uh, the facts and don't. Uh, eh, I have a little problem about patting myself on the back. I don't want to appear to be doing that. And so everything I write, it's is it's true, you know. It and if it sounds a little sensational, well, it. I've shot a lot of arrows, and if you shoot as many arrows as I have, sooner or later, sensational things happen. It's, you know, I'm not Howard Hill, I'm not Fred Bear, but I've shot a lot of arrows. But we all have we all have those stories, though. That when you when you tell it. It's almost like as you're telling it, you're going, you know, if I was listening to somebody tell this to me, I don't know if I would believe it. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I've, I've told stories that, uh, oh, I've got stories I quit telling because people would look at me and I knew they thought I, I knew they were thinking I was a liar. So uh, I just quit telling them. So from, uh, I guess from the, from the book, What's your what's your favorite story from the book? Oh gosh. I would have to say that one that <laughs> that we're not talking about. <laughs> well, you can talk about look, you can talk about anything you want to in the book. Obviously, you know, I would like to see you sell more of the book cuz it's just it's a great book, but uh right. feel free to elaborate any you want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that story, I like that story because of the uh, the creative aspect of it. You know, I did a after a while writing and everything. You you start looking for little challenges to help polish your style and just see how far you can go with it. And uh, I did one one story in, on Trad Gang uh, 
And I thought, I, I had seen a, an episode of Seinfeld, and they started out, they went to India to this wedding, and they started out at like the end of the second week, and then each day backwards till the day they actually left on the trip. So it's everything was in reverse. So I thought, I wonder if I can tell a story about shooting a deer. I forget exactly what the subject was, but if I can tell that story from the end to the beginning. And I pulled it off, but it about, <laughs> it, it about blew my brains out my ears trying to put it all together it, it was it was tough and i thought once i got it done i thought okay that's enough of that well charlie this is actually uh i tell you what i do want to dive into that chapter this is a good spot to uh insert our passing down tradition segment so we're going to take a brief break here and then we're going to dive into that story just a little bit okay okay that's fine this week on passing down traditions i'm going to do something a little different and give a shout out to a specific individual who i feel does a lot for uh, the traditional bow hunting community especially um, with passing along information and, and helping others be successful. And that person is Jason Samkowiak. Now, Jason runs the traditional bow hunting and wilderness podcast. Um, and if you hadn't heard for, heard of Jason before, um, I don't, I'm not sure what rock you've been under, but uh, Jason is truly a pioneer when it comes to podcasting within the traditional archery and traditional bow hunting community. Uh, he releases a weekly podcast and for the most part, his his episodes really focus on making others successful. Uh, he shares information that he's gained from personal experience, and he does so without any reimbursement, any sponsors. Uh, and he's he's using a lot of times he's using gear that he's paid for out of his pocket, much like um, the the gear episodes that we've done. He spends a lot of time researching gear, researching techniques, spending time in the field, proving. Uh, these items and these techniques with hands-on testing actually in the field. Um, he's got his scouting DVDs that he's worked on, um, which I know he has spent a lot more time putting those together um, and then producing them as a, a product for someone to actually purchase than he'll ever get out of the um, get back in the, the sales on these things. So if you haven't heard of the DVDs, be sure to check those out. Uh, Jason's just a, he's just a giver. Um, he's been, you know, participating with and promoting other podcasts, just like here on traditional outdoors every week, he gives a shout out to a product or other channel, uh, podcast, video channels, companies, and, and he does all this without asking for any payment or, uh, any favors. Jason's just a, a swell guy. And not only does he have the podcast, but he also has his own website, again, Traditional Bow Hunting and Wilderness Podcast, as well as a YouTube channel uh, devoted to um, traditional bow hunting, bushcraft, and, and things in the field. 
Uh, and it's all really just to share his experiences and his ideas with a simple goal of helping others avoid mistakes that he himself has made in the past. Um, he's got some other video channels out there. Y'all check those out as well. Um, but I really want to focus here on, on the things that he's doing to preserve and pass down traditions. I've spent a lot of time listening to Jason's podcast over the years. He's been doing those for getting close to three years now. Um, I've watched a lot of his uh, videos, and he and I have actually spoken in person or on the phone on numerous occasions, and he's just, he's always ready to be helpful in any way he can. Um, if all of this is not an example for what passing down traditions is and preserving our outdoor heritage and our traditions, then I just don't know what is. So personally, I want to say thank you, Jason, for everything you've done to help me along the way and for everything you have done to help so many others. I encourage anyone listening that has not heard of Jason's podcast to be sure and check him out as soon as you finish this episode. And if you already listen to Jason, then please take the time to send him a message or leave him a review on iTunes or Podbean or your favorite podcast app, or maybe leave him a comment on one of the many videos he has thanking him for all his efforts. Jason, you are an example for so many of us, so please keep up the good work. And if there's ever anything that I personally can do to assist you, please never hesitate to reach out and let me know. With that, we're going to get back to our show. So back to our discussion with Mr. Charlie Lamb. All right, Charlie. So before the break, we've been we've been kind of beating around this this mysterious chapter, and and I actually, like I said, I hope it's the I hope it's the same one you're thinking of now, since I've built this thing up so much. But the, the so the the title of the chapter that I'm talking about is Longbows and Giant Jacks. Now, is that the one you're yeah. thinking of? That's the that's one. what I figured. So, you know, I, I guess. I'm going to tell just real briefly my just a high level of this chapter, and then I'll let you jump in and elaborate any you want to. But, you know, the okay. first time I read this, it was almost like it was almost like you knew just from the first paragraph where this was going, but you still you just had to follow the chapter along, and it just got better and better. But basically what this is about is it's a fictional story that that you just had to tell around jackrabbits that, if I remember correctly, was something like the size of a Labrador or maybe it was the size of a white tailor. <laughs> but it was great, and and you get to the end and it's uh, it's pretty much exactly what you expected, and the way you closed out the chapter was fantastic as well. So, anything you want to add to that and elaborate on that to let the listeners know, kind of you know <laughs> what's in that chapter, I'm gonna leave it to you. Okay, well. It, 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 Basically, that uh, that story is based on a real experience, with the exception of the fantastic, <laughs> fanta the fantastic aspects of it. I was working uh, in Western Wyoming with uh, with a guy we were, who dr uh, drilled water wells, and we took this cap job. We went back up close to the mountains and had a drive through a lot of snow to get back up to this bunkhouse and all day long we'd sit in the truck and we'd watch this uh this his well drill drilling rig drilling for water you know get out every once in a while do this do that keep drilling then in the evening when we shut down we'd go back to the bunkhouse well there was no electricity 
and there was, you know, there just there was nothing to do, you know. Be and it was it was winter time, and you know it gets dark really early. So it just so happened that it was a bright moonlit night or nights while we were there, and I just I thought I've got to do something. So I got my bow one night, and I knew there were jackrabbits around. I'd seen lots of them. And I got put on my uh, my shoulder quiver full of blunts, and I went off looking for jackrabbits. And I found them. But I was shooting them by moonlight, trying trying to shoot them by <laughs> moonlight. I lost a bunch of arrows. But, uh, and that's, that's basically, that was the... That was the beginning of all that. Then the other thing was uh, my experiences with the c computer and Photoshop and that type of thing. You know that 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 all kind of it, it all meshed. And and then there was a a story written by one of my my heroes. I was a real big fan of Ch I still am Chester Stevenson out of mm -hmm. Eugene, Oregon. And and Chester wrote a story. I guess he and he and his buddy Grover wrote stories back and forth, trying to one up each other. And he he told it about a about a squirrel. That's a great story. That's in uh, Nick Knott's book, Dinner of the Old Bow Hunter. And uh, and that's you know the, I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to write a story like that. But it, at the time I first read that, I was. Uh, I was in high school, and I would go to the local library and make the librarian get these archery magazines out of the archives, and she'd bring them up for me, and I'd, I'd spend all, all day going through stacks of archery magazines and reading every word that Chet Stevenson wrote. I was, that man just, he, he was my idea of what a bow hunter should be. You know, he'd go off into the mountains with a bow and a bunch of broadhead arrows and a slab of bacon and some coffee. And that was, you know, that was bow hunting for him. And his writing style, of course, was very engaging. And, and so I set him up as a hero. And whenever I finally, when everything came together, I had that experience shooting jackrabbits at night. I had the Photoshop uh, available. And had some success with that, and it just it all gelled into what you find in the book that we won't say much more about. <laughs> and man, it's funny you mentioned Den of the Old Bow Hunter, Charlie, because I I was just reading my daughter's had swim lessons tonight, and that's that's one of my favorite books. Right. Um, and I I was reading it by the pool, and I was reading that chapter tonight, which is or one of them. Oh. I mean, there's plenty of them with him and Grover. What was his last name? Was it Gauthier or Gaudier or what? Uh, yeah. Guthier, uh, Guthier or something. Guthier, I, yeah. I yeah, yeah, something. I don't know. But man, they both looked the part though, didn't they? They just, oh. I mean, that, what, that Grover had the, the pipe, uh, he, he had his, his anchor was a certain way so he could have his pipe hanging out of his mouth while he was shooting. And, and, <laughs> and the, yep, and the, had the, the brim of his felt hat tucked under. Oh, yeah. You know, it was it was just I, I love that. And but the photography in that book, because he was a photographer, but he was he was doing all those funny photoshoppy photos in a in a dark room. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, and there's some really funny good ones in there, but um, you don't see a lot of really entertaining stories about small game hunting and, and the ones that are in that book are phenomenal. I mean, they're, oh, yeah. I, I just, I just absolutely love them. And, um, 
you know, that being said, you've written a, a, a great small game story yourself. And, you know, I got to back up a little bit because I first heard of you on Trad Gang, but I stumbled into the part of the forum where you were putting your stories. And okay. I, I was reading them and I copy and paste them out of the Trad Gang forum and put them into a Word document and print them off at work and read them at lunchtime. Oh, okay. And um, my favorite is the Great Squirrel Massacre. <laughs> yep, yep. That I, you know, that was like one of the first stories I read where I thought, you know, this can really be a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, this doesn't yep. need to be, you know, because this All was kind of early. On, yeah, this was kind of early on in my in my bow hunting career, so to speak. And I was kind of like, you know, everybody's kind of kind of serious. And here's this. I mean, it just sounded like you were having a blast. And oh, that, we were. And that, that writing that one had to have been a blast for you. It was, you know, and it was it was taxing because there was so much going on that day that remembering everything, uh, you know, and putting it all together was uh, it was it was a little tough. You know, I I I had I'd have this a flood of memories of this shot and that shot and you know. Uh, times when I shot at one squirrel and miss, and the arrow ricocheted off and killed another one, you know. The, and the and those things happened, and you know, and shooting doubles and triples and all that 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 place had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, yeah, to remember all those shots that you you'd have to have a heck of a memory because you shot a lot in that story. <laughs> well, uh, I always I always said, you know, I I was shooting a eighty two pound Howard Hill Big Five. And if I hit one squirrel in five shots, that would have been doing better than average. Well, I killed 102 ground squirrels that day. So there's 500 shots. If, if I did that good, if not, then it might have been seven or 800 shots, and it wore me out. I mean, I, I had a big uh, blister on my middle finger. The, the serving on the, on the bowstring, it... It came on unwound. I had to do a field repair on that. I had a blood blister in the web of my left hand from the the leather on that bow handle. <laughs> it was just and my buddy, he was shooting a compound bow, so unbeknownst to me, he cranked it back about ten pounds before we went went out that day. So it was a it was a walk in the park for him. Yeah, an eighty two pound bow on ground squirrels and 500 shots. I can't even, I don't even know how you even moved the next day. Uh, it was, it, it was telling. <laughs> we'll say that much. Well, that's my favorite story that I, I, I read on Trad Gang. What is, um, if it's not that one, what, what is your favorite that you've, yeah, you told there? Okay. My favorite in the book is the bear and the bouncing bow. Oh, yeah. That's, that was one of my all time favorite experience uh two of my very best friends which always makes it special both of them are are gone now and uh it was just i don't know it, it, i was relatively new i think that was my first year in wyoming and uh you know so the mountains were a great mystery and bears i didn't know diddly about bears so uh I was I was learning and and you know there's a, there's a little bit of uh, oh gosh I don't know what you'd call it not fear but uh, a little anxiety 
If you go off to track a wounded bear, you don't know what you're going to come upon or, you know, what the results are going to be. So, so it was all just, everything was keyed up. I was on high alert. You know, the mountains were beautiful. The birds were singing and the air was crystal clear like it is out there. And, uh, and in the end, it worked out with some of the, <laughs> a couple of the best shots I think I've ever made in my entire life. You know, which really, uh, we did not found that bear had I not made the two shots that I made. Actually, the first shot would have, would have done it. The fact that I was able to hit him a second time at that distance uh, was just icing on the cake. But, you know, my, my buddies were there. I was, they were cheering me on. They're up, I walked out onto this big boulder tracking this bear. The one buddy was colorblind. The other one didn't have patience for a tough tracking job, and this was a tough tracking job. This was a speck of blood every 10 yards or so, and we were at it for several hours before we it, all the action started. And I had... Uh, I'd walked out on this big boulder and was convinced that it was over, that we weren't going to find this animal. And all of a sudden, I started smelling what I knew was bear. I'd never smelled a bear before in my life, but I knew what I was smelling was bear. And I knew, because I, I smoked pretty heavy back in those days, that if I could smell it, it had to be pretty close. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, he was right under... On the downhill side of that boulder, the boulder was kind of undercut, and he was uh, he was bedded up against it. So I couldn't have see seen him, no matter how far out I leaned. I couldn't have seen him where he was. But he got nervous because we were talking back and forth, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to tell my buddy that we're not going to find the, his bear. And that's when the the bear broke out of there, and <laughs> I fumbled the bow and. It bounced off of that rock and down down the mountainside it went. And, I, you know, I, I love my bows anyway. And to see one careening down a mountainside, it was just more than I could bear. <laughs> so, so I, <laughs> oh, man. I, yeah, I, I jumped after it and got a, got a hold of it, put a broadhead on the string and shot him on the dead run at about 40 yards, something like that. Wow. Yeah, and it was a... a it was about a 75-pound, 70, 75-pound bear Kodiak and a bear razor head. And I shot through him lengthways. And he, he immediately got sick and stopped to go up a tree, and that's when I hit him with the second arrow. And, and then he ran around that tree and died. So, But it was just, but you know, the whole time, my buddies are yelling, you know, and they're, they're picking up rocks and whatever to throw rocks if they have to. They don't know what's going to happen either, <laughs> you know. And it was, it, we had two guys with us that were from back here in Missouri that had come out to visit. And they really didn't know much about the outdoors at all. And whenever that bear showed up from underneath that rock, they went over the mountain. <laughs> these two guys that they could barely keep up while we're trailing this bear and as soon as they saw him they over the mountain they went and they showed up about a half hour after we got him after we got him down they they came <laughs> strolling down the mountain wow yeah that's quite a tale 
Yeah, it is. It is. I love I love those guys, and I you know I loved hunting with them, and and that uh, that was just the kind of thing that seemed to happen when we, when we got together. So Charlie, I know you you like I said, obviously there's there's tons of stories that you've told on Trad Gang. Um, I forget how many's in the in the book, but I know there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stories in that book, but at the same time. Mm-hmm. I know it doesn't contain all of them. So, you know, what was the, what was your process for trying to, to trying to figure out, you know, what made the book, what didn't, cause I mean, you know, there's gotta be a lot of stories that didn't make it into the book. So, you know, I guess I'm just curious right. about what your process was there for trying to, you know, decide what, what made the book and what didn't. Well, you know, as I said earlier, uh, I've had my, I have my archery heroes, you know, Fred Bear, Howard Hill, Chet Stevenson, Jim Doherty, guys like this. And I, the, the thing about those guys that always really seemed to captivate me was their small game hunting stories, especially like, like the ground squirrel thing and, and, uh, rabbits with chet stevenson or squirrels with chet stevenson and and the rabbits and uh rabbits and squirrels with howard hill and and i decided that instead of kind of you know your writing tells a little bit about who you are or and or maybe more correctly a a little about who you think you are and i didn't want to try to come off as some uh a chuck adams or some big trophy hunter because i'm not you know i've i've killed a few pretty nice animals over the years but that's not what it takes for me to be happy in a hunt and i really if i had to make a choice between big game and small game hunting for the rest of my life i think i'd have to take small game hunting you know, give me good good rabbit hunting any any day of the week, and I'm tickle pink, and I love to hunt ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. So, so basically that that kind of set the tone. I threw in enough uh, big game stuff to, you know, to interest people, and, and but I kind of tended to lean more towards the small game side of things, you know, and trying not to be. And trying not to play myself off as some kind of big shot. That was that was important to me. Well, and it's funny, you know, we uh Nick and myself and, and Tom have we've had quite a few hunts and whenever I think about there's a couple of situations, one in particular that's around and I it's really more of a invasive species than it is small game, but you know, all of our laughing, hilarious stories seem to evolve around everything other than the animal we were actually pursuing on that hunt. Right. Right. Uh, and even this last one out without going into a lot of detail, there were, there were some shenanigans that went on in camp involving chipmunks and squirrels. And, uh, yours truly had made a way more granola to pack in for breakfast than I really needed. And, <laughs> and there, yeah, there's tales of baiting chipmunks in there somewhere. I, I won't go. Yeah. <laughs> And and I, no chipmunks were harmed in the in the making of this Wyoming hunt. Um, those things are fast. 
<laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we had we had one up in Wyoming, uh, up in western Wyoming, called the least chipmunk, and I don't think that thing, its body, is more than. If it's two inches, I think that's stretching it. It's a tiny little thing, and they're just amazingly fast. And I always and I've killed a few of them, but I swore for a long time that you could shoot at one, and as the arrow got there, he'd jump up, land on the blunt, run run down the length of the arrow, and hop <laughs> off right where he's standing to begin with. <laughs> you know, they they were that fast. Well, at the end of our hunt last week on Friday, we actually broke camp midday. There was threat of thunderstorms. We didn't want to deal with a wet tent that afternoon, so we right. went ahead and broke camp early and. As we were squaring away the rest of our gear, I had still had two quart bags, uh, Ziploc bags full of granola. Granola. And I just, <laughs> I walked around the different stumps and, and put a, a generous helping of this stuff. And by the time we got ready to leave, it was a concert of chipmunk chirps and squeaks <laughs> back at each other because they were starting to find it. And I, I don't know if they were warning everybody else away from what they had found or calling others in, but it, it was a pretty good chorus of them by the time we hiked out of there about an hour later. You'll probably have to find a different place to camp next time you go in there. They'll be waiting well, probably, for you. You probably pull it up on Google Earth and see them looking up. Because there was a bunch of them. Yep, yep. So do uh, do you? And I want to get away. I got one more question around the uh, the book, and I got a couple others I'd like for us to get into away from the book. But you know, do you do you have any thoughts or plans on possibly writing a, a follow up or a sequel? Wow, uh, I've thought about it, and I've had several people approach me about it, and I'm I'm getting to a point in time where I think I could. <laughs> But to tell you the truth, self-publishing, it I really burned out in that process because I was doing. I don't know how many times I've read my my book, but far more than I really wanted to, uh, you know, because I'd have to edit, and then every time I if if you change one word in the first chapter, it has an impact on where the photos are halfway through the book and by the time you get to the end of the book pictures are running off the page and right it, i didn't i didn't have the software that i needed to to do that editing and in the end the publisher uh just said heck you're you know you're ordering enough books to uh we'll just do it for you oh that's because i'd good. send uh, yeah I'd, I'd send it off thinking okay it's perfect and they say, no, we have this problem. And so I go sit back down with it. And and that went up back and forth, went back and forth on that for about a week. And they finally said, look, <laughs> we're going to do you a favor. It's not going to cost you any more money and we'll get this done for you. So it makes you paranoid after a while. Every time you, I, I haven't even read mine yet. I'm just right. I'm too scared. I know. <laughs> I don't want to find anything in there, but right. but you're right. right. You know, you're just you. It's uh, and yeah, self publishing's it. It's definitely a. It's a learning process, that's for sure. And if you didn't have like, you said you did a lot of that on your own. Like I had, I had, you know, I'm in marketing, and I have a, I have graphic designers that work with me and proofreaders and stuff like that. And you know, I called in some favors, and that kind of helped me get through it. 
Um, and now, you know, with some of the things available, like create space, it's a lot easier to do it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it sounds like working with what you had limited, you know, and to put out such an excellent product that you did, that's impressive. So you should be proud of it for sure. I'm sure you are, but yeah, it could could burn you out. And I'd imagine in your case, it probably was, it was probably was more, way more difficult. Um, Well, it, uh, it was, it was trying to say the least, you know, the writing the stories was the easy part. You know, the getting them all together in a book that was that turned out to be a little bit more of a challenge. Yeah, because it's almost mm-hmm. been ten years, hasn't it, Charlie? You know, you know what? Time gets away from me, but I think it it's pretty probably pretty close. And the only reason I remember that is because um, I I I bought actually bought two copies. I I bought the. Um, the the advanced purchase whatever you I don't remember what we called it but anyway I got that one right. uh, early and then a few weeks later I thought you know what my my daughter was really getting into uh, reading at the time and she's um, she's actually getting ready to she'll graduate high school this year and be off to college but um, I bought her a copy because she was like I said she was really getting into reading and about the time she started uh, shooting a bow as well. Um, and I was just in here doing the math in my head and I want to say that it's been about 10 years. Hmm. So I know things have come a long way as far as the create space and so forth since then. Right. Right. Yeah. Those are things I don't really, uh, I've only just heard of them. So let's, let's, we're, we're, we've just passed a little over an hour here and I don't want to keep you too long at night. And obviously there's still a lot of things we could probably talk about, but I know you talked about in the book. I remember when I was reading the book, you, you talked a good bit about, uh, making bows, building bows. Um, and I, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. You know, is that something you're still doing today? Uh, and, and really, you know, what types of bows, uh, I don't recall from the reading if it really got into a lot of detail as far as what types of bows you were making. So I, I would really yeah. like to hear more about that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I make anything from self bows to, uh, laminated long bows, reflex, deflex, long bows, hill style long bows, uh, glassed. And uh, the natural style, you know, with the bamboo back and 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 recurves, and uh, I made them for money for a while, and it got to be a job. And I really was at a point in my life where I didn't need a job and didn't want a job. And no matter, you know, if if I had five bows that I had to make and I knew it was going to take me six months to deliver all those bows, if I told the guy, yeah, I'll take the order, but it's going to be six months, don't bother me. (laughs) He'd be on the phone next week wanting to know how it's coming. Well, and I, you know, it made me feel bad. And and so that, that kind of the pressure of that kind of got to me. So now I make one every once in a while. You know, if somebody really wants one, I'll, I'll make them. I, I really enjoy making long bows more than anything, the, the hill styles. I really enjoy making the, the natural, bamboo back natural style long bows, the, the most of all. But I, right now I'm shooting a, a recurve this year and last year. 
And I guess for probably five years prior to that, I had carried one of my hill-style bows. And, uh, you know, just kind of, I never was great with a hill-style bow. You know, I never was really a, a, a very good shot with a hill-style bow. But with a recurve, I'm, I'll shoot with anybody. So how long have you been so, making bows again, Charlie? Well, I made my first one when I was 17, I guess. Oh, for so for for quite a while. I, th- I thought you were going to... Decades. Decades. <laughs> decades. I was going to so, say, Nick just called you old. I don't know if you yeah, I did picked not up call on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought... I, you know, I don't, people get into this at different points, but uh, when... Uh, so when when was the first time that you actually uh, was the, the uh, did you actually hunt with your first bow that you made? Oh gosh, that wasn't till I don't know. That was probably like thirty years ago. Before I uh, hunted with my first my very first bow that I made when I was seventeen was. Uh, 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 it wasn't much to look at, <laughs> and I and I've still got it. It was a club, and I, 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 I was I was so proud of this thing. I I put it together uh, in the form, glued it all up, you know, made the made the riser, all that stuff, put it in the form. I didn't have a hot box. I didn't have any way to cure the glue, so I. It was the middle of summer, and I was working in East St. Louis across the river. And it took me almost, well, it took me an hour to get over there, get over there almost. And so I just took the whole works and I put it in my old 60 Chevy and closed all the windows up, no air conditioning. And I drove to work in the summer sun (laughs) with that, with that bow in the backseat cooking. And I was cooking as well. (laughs) So, but by, by the time I got off work, it was cured and it was ready. And then when I got it done... And I thought it was a masterpiece. I went down to Hoyt Archery Company and uh, Owen Jeffrey. I don't know if you ever heard of Owen Jeffrey. Okay. Owen Jeffrey was the the master bowyer at that time. And he he came out to the, they had a little pro shop. And when the bell rang, he came out to, to help me. And we knew each other pretty well. And I showed them, showed him this bow I had made. And he was very, very polite. That was Owen's nature, but you you know, thinking back on it, he was more than polite. He was he was kind, <laughs> and he said, "Yep, that's a bow." <laughs> 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 so you know, it it bent and it had a string, and that's about all you can say about it. You you hotboxed it in a car on a hot day. That is uh, while driving around it. That is awesome. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! I checked it. I checked it with a thermometer one time, and on an average day, it get to be 125 in a in a car, a, a closed up car. So, it was, Nick Nick knows all know. about that. Yeah, I was gonna say I didn't. You know, I yeah, I lost <laughs> one that way. I didn't know how hot they could get in a car. Uh, and yeah, I just threw mine in the car to get out of the rain and forgot about it. Um, at an event because I was running around and helping to run it and. Next thing I knew, I had I had D lambs. That that wasn't Ooh. that wasn't very fun. Um, and that no. that bow bit the dust and and, and I wrote about that and that I I learned my lesson the hard way. Not that I meant to leave it in there, but yeah, it, 
man, 102. I believe it too. I mean, you when I took that bow out of the out of the back of the car, it was hot to the touch. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it was amazing, and that's that really kind of proves you don't leave nothing in a car that you know. <laughs> right. You you take a piece of wood or fiberglass, anything. And leave it at 125 degrees until it reaches that temperature, and you can't handle that barehanded. You know, it'll be, it'll burn you. So it just so, did it take you a couple. So other than an aesthetics thing, did you just have to build up your confidence before you started hunting with a bow that you made, or did you just did it take a while, or did you just progressively keep at it until you got better, or was it a kind of a every once in a while you you made one or? Yeah, know. it was kind of a. Uh, every once in a while I'd make one and I, a buddy of mine had gotten a, uh, a, a Savora longbow and it was all, you, you would, uh, you would riser block, you would limbs, uh, uh, brown glass facing back. And it was, it was gorgeous. And I thought I can copy this. And, and my problem was that I knew how to do it because Earl Hoyt used to let me hang around in the shop all i wanted i you know mm-hmm. and i spent hours hours watching watching pe- them build bows back in that shop i knew what to do i just didn't have the the hands uh the skills to with tools and everything to to make a a decent outcome so as i as i aged and i developed more skill with hand tools then i i was able to bring off a pretty fair reproduction of that uh, Savora longbow that my buddy had. I made the riser block out of a an oak pallet and then uh, had maple limbs and black black glass and I uh, oh I got a book I forget who the book who wrote the book but it was an old timer like in the late 1800s about tillering the bow and and how you know all these different measurements and i basically i took a measurement every five inches along the length of the limb and made it uh uh correspond to the the you know on the high side say it's five inches and on the low uh, the lower limb it's uh four and uh four and five eighths or what or whatever you know and every five inches those numbers would correspond and i i learned eventually that i didn't need to do that but uh that it was uh it was a learning process so charlie i gotta ask you on the on the the all wood hill style bows that you're talking about i gotta i gotta learn a little bit more about that so i you know i've seen the bows with the uh bamboo backing but are you are you treating those more like a self bow that you're then backing or are they made from uh laminations of wood glued together with a uh a lamination of bamboo as the back okay i i glue them up in stages uh usually three different stages i i'll do the i do the core which is bamboo uh, bamboo laminations mm-hmm. and usually it, i'll use three laminations and I've got a certain thickness that I that I work to to achieve a weight, but I glue that up in a, a pretty heavily reflexed form. Okay. So when it comes out, it's like, it's got like four inches of reflex in it, and then I put it in uh, a less reflexed form, and I glue the back 
back on and the and the belly piece. Now the belly piece, I'll leave like not quite a half inch thick, and then I'll flatten out a spot after after comes out of that form now it's looking more like a a reasonably reflexed bow it's only got like an inch of reflex in it and by reflex f- it's your it's what a lot of people refer to as back set i'm assuming yeah okay. yeah the tips yep. bent bend away from the handle or the archer and then i then i put on my uh my riser block you know once i make a place for it i, I glue my riser block on and then uh cut it to profile and then, uh, then I start, I put a till string on it and I start drawing it a little bit at a time, just you would with, as you would with a self bow and, uh, and I'm tillering it as I, as I draw and bring it to weight. And usually what happens is during that t- tillering process, I lose whatever reflex that I had in it and it'll end up being slightly, uh, string fall, usually less than an inch of string follow. But I like that in a longbow. Mm-hmm. I think I think it makes them, uh, uh, like Howard said, it makes them more accurate. So, that, it, you know, so, not everybody would agree with that, but I certainly feel that way. Very cool. So basically, it's 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 for all intents and purposes, it's a it's a laminated bow. It's just it doesn't have laminations of fiberglass. Does not have fiberglass. That's very correct. cool. I'd love to see some pictures of that. I've I've, I've seen. I've never seen a, uh, personally, I've never seen a, a, a hill style bow made that way. Now I have seen, uh, some, I guess you would call them a hill. I guess they're closer to a hill style than anything else. More the, you know, the D style, um, um, limbs, but they were, I'm trying to, I don't even remember the wood they were made out of. I, it may have been, even been uh, black cherry, but had a bamboo or a hickory, uh, backing strip you know just to because the cherry obviously wouldn't wouldn't hold up by itself but i've never seen one right. that was done with multiple laminations of wood like that right well you know saxton pope talked about uh, laminated bows in uh in his mm-hmm. book uh, hunting the hard way or no hunting with the bow and arrow right. uh, mm-hmm. and uh so it was known to bowyers at that time you know in the early early 1900s so it's not a new concept but he pope being a romantic he you know he loved the english longbow and and so anything else is not gonna not gonna cut the mustard you know if it's not an english longbow then he won't have anything to do with it and and his thoughts on the uh, laminated bows was that they were brash they you know they were shocky you know they just you know they just didn't make a good bow, you know according to him. But probably the laminated bows that he made were what they call a, a bend through the handle bow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know they didn't have the the uh, the stiffener or you know, the riser with the bu- what they call Buchanan dips on either end. So they probably bent through the bent through the handle and I, that would be account for them being shocky. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Cause the action's happening right there. I, I built a couple of those too, and they are, well, mine aren't very good at all, but <laughs> I can see how, how that would be the case. Um, are you, and, and, you know, forgive me if you already talked about this, Charlie, but are you, are you carrying one of your own bows into the woods with you this season? Oh yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I haven't shot anybody else's bows now in <sighs> probably 20 years. What's it named? Oh, wow. I call them sun bears. Very cool. Very cool. Sorry, that's Nick. Not, yep. No, hey, that's what, so that's what you, do you call all of them that, or is that, that bow's name? I, no, I call all the bows I make Sun Bear. Sun Bear, okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this particular bow is Curly. He was, he was the product of a change in my form where I, I put more, uh, more curl in the, in the recurve. And I, I like the, it's a good bow. <laughs> it's a good bow. So I, na- I named him Curly. You know, there's always something that uh, brings about the, the name. The, you just don't pick it out of nowhere. It, it, it comes to you. Right. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there, too. I like to name all mine, uh, mine also. Um, yeah. I think, it, but they kind of earn it. I don't just give it to them. I, I kind of something just kind of comes to me. I think it's the. I love to hear those stories though, because some people just really aren't into naming their bows. They they think they're material things, and and I don't know. I've always kind of looked at a bow like it had a soul. I guess. I don't. Yeah, know. yeah. I, I kind of feel that way too. And and uh, all the bows that I've made for other people have uh, had a name on them whenever they went out. One thing or another. I've made one long bow that it had a, a Coca Bolo riser. And it really nice figure to it, and color uh, and grain differences and everything. And it, you know, the uh, what movie is it? The Halloween with the spook face. You know, the the white face oh, with the long scream, long jaw scream. Yeah. yeah, scream. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, that was in the wood. I could see that in the wood, <laughs> and and so I named that bow Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and the guy took when i delivered the bow he picked it up looked it over for a minute and i saw the name and he looked it over a little more and he grinned real big and he got it you know he got it so funniest bow, a- funniest bow name i ever heard um a couple years ago um uh a buddy of mine I'm, I'm sitting here drawing a blank on his name um anyway he he took delivery of a bow from steve teray down in Alabama, and the, right. the riser was um, uh, bird's eye maple. Okay. And in the last sanding process, one of the eyes popped out of the riser and left a little uh, indention just right below the leather grip. Uh-huh. And you obviously can probably guess what the bow got named. It was Popeye. That was one of the coolest <laughs> ones I ever ran across. It, that right. Just because of right. something in the wood that, that brought out the name. Right, right. I don't uh, I typically don't avoid a piece of wood because of uh, flaws like that, as long as it, it doesn't hurt the integrity of the limbs or something like that. Right, you know, where it would sure. would cause the bow to break. But I just figure that gives them more character. Yeah, I kind of I tend to want them more if they got something like that. Uh, right, but right. So what are you what are you taking that what are you taking that bow into the woods? Uh, what, what are you going after this year? Uh, I'm just going to be hunting whitetails this year. I, it's uh, looking like I'm going to be going down to Texas in late November. I'll probably hunt some whitetails down there and there, and and maybe a pig or two. It, uh, a buddy of mine down there's got uh, a few hogs showing up on his new property, and I'm always I'm all, always up for a hog hunt. They are fun, aren't they? They're a gas. I love it. I still. Uh... 
I still have a soft spot in my heart for whitetails. I, I, I would much rather pursue them than just about anything, but I'll be honest, hogs have become a very close second just because they're, they're a lot of fun and it's something that you can pursue just about year round if you want to. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's the, you know, that's the draw for me. I mean, and they're not, you know, it's not, you're not walking out into the barnyard, just knocking over farmer Jones's pig. You know, <laughs> these things are sharp. Sure. I don't, I don't, I don't think most people really comprehend how sharp they are. So what is your, what's your favorite animal to pursue? Oh gosh. I really, uh, I really love pronghorn antelope hunting. Uh, spot and stalk. Yeah. Yep. So I've, yep. I've, I've sent, I, I usually ask you each guest that question. And we had Paul Bruner on a couple of weeks ago and I asked him that question and, and typical Paul fashion. He just, he sat there real quiet for a minute and he said, well, in September it's, and then October it's, <laughs> and it was just a classic Paul response. But so I've only hunted right. pronghorn once and i I did not hunt them spot and stalk. I didn't. I hunted them over a, a, a water hole, which, long story, turned into a bit of a, a stalk. But um, that's, yeah, that's that's tough hunting. Those those things can. It's yeah. hard to fool their eyes. It is. It is. The last one I shot, I, I caught them watering at a a, a little creek down in sage you know in sagebrush country but there willows mm-hmm. lined the creek and i noticed that this little herd of antelope that i'd been watching from a distance where they were one by one they'd go over by these willows and i thought i bet they're watering down there so i beat feet real quick got behind the willows and i came down and i had a ghillie suit on and i got within Oh, I'd say 10 or 15 feet of the, the creek in the water itself. And sure enough, here came some more antelope right down. to I, I could see the spot on the other bank where they were coming down. It, they had a, a rut worn. So I stood there and this pretty nice buck comes down and he gets right in the water in front of me at about 10 feet. And I thought, he's not big enough. I'm not going to shoot him. And he's got two does that come come in now now it's him and he's got a doe on either side of him and they're all slurping water up making all kinds of commotion and he gets done drinking and he turns and walks away and the further the further he gets the bigger he starts to look to me until finally at about 30 yards i'm thinking why did you let him walk away and i drew up and and heart shot him at 30 yards very fortunate but the, the my point was that those two does we're standing basically under me at about ten feet. They and they never had a clue. Uh, they they spooked a little bit at the sound of the bow, but they didn't have a clue what was going on. And I I thought that was pretty neat. Pretty neat. Well, Tom and I were actually talking about while we were out in Wyoming last week that uh, I'm starting to get the itch to go back hunting pronghorn again. I wasn't sure. I mean, I really enjoyed the hunt. I loved the hunt, but it was, it was to be honest, it was such a roller coaster hunt. I when it was over, I I really didn't even allow myself to to think or or talk about you know when I'd get to go back. Right. And we were we spent a little bit of time talking about that last week, and I think that's something I'm probably going 
Because now in Wyoming, you pretty much have to buy preference points again, even for animals. Yeah. So uh, I think I'm going to buy a preference yeah. point this year and start thinking about heading back pretty soon. Yeah. Yep. That's a shame. You know, I uh, when I lived out there, of course, it was pretty wide open. I could, I, I could get as many as four antelope permits a year and just go to the hardware store and buy them. Wow. Yeah. So. And that was a, a buck and three does, but that was fine because I really enjoy antelope meat. And so that, you know, my family was raised on deer, antelope, moose, elk, <laughs> you know, so I always tried to have a few antelope in the freezer every fall. I was very, I was very pleased with it myself. I, I, in fact, I've still got a few pieces of, of the two that I've that I shot in 2016 that I'm, I'm kind of hoarding, but, uh, I actually really enjoyed it myself. Right. I think you, you hear a lot of horror stories about antelope meat, you know, well, you know, we cooked some up and we had to throw away the frying pan and, you know, and, the, and I've never had a bad one ever. I've killed a bunch of them and I've never had a bad antelope. They, they all taste great. You know, they taste a little different than deer, mm-hmm. but, uh, And I'm wondering if some people don't do, because it does have a different smell, especially if it's, if it's antelope that's been eaten, you know, pretty much nothing but sagebrush, you know, it has that sage smell when it, when it's cooking. But what surprised me is if you, so cooking it, I thought, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to like this or not because of that smell. But then after, once I started eating, it was almost like you didn't taste that. As strongly as you, I mean, you can still taste the hint of sage, but it's nothing like you would think it would be from the smell it has when you're, when you're cooking it. Oh yeah. Yep. There, uh, you know, and of course, when you get one on the ground and you walk up to them, they can be pretty strong if you shoot, especially you shoot a buck. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think, you know, it's like anything else. The secret to good antelope meat is, is how you take care of it in the field. Well, that's, and that's yeah. all of them. The, the yeah. quicker you can get it yeah. cooled down and, and instead of, you know, riding around showing it to your buddies, that the, the better off you're going to be and the much better table fare it's going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dump the guts, get some ice in there, wash them out. Do it, you know, I'm, and I'm a big believer in washing out the, the body cavities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if there's any intestinal matter or anything like that, of course, neutri- I, I neutralize it with uh, baking soda and then rinse it real good. And, I've never had a problem. Of course, I try not to <laughs> introduce those flavors to sure. any part of the right. meat, you know, but <laughs> sometimes the knife slips and things happen. Well, Mr. Charlie, I just looked up and saw we've been we've been rambling away here for about an hour and a half. I don't want to I definitely don't want to keep you too long. We 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 talk everything up. We won't have a reason to 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 ask you back but i i am I gonna ask nick nick you anything else you wanted to charlie and i got talking there a little bit at the end i didn't give you a chance to get a word in edgewise but <laughs> you got anything else uh no i'm used to listening to you talk i'm good <laughs> <laughs> no i it's gonna be i and i tell you what it's been a pleasure charlie and i i'm gonna have fun going back and listening to this one again um Whoa. and uh I look, I, you know, if you do plan on writing anything else in the future and, uh, I, I can't wait to read it. And, uh, I was going to ask you too. So did, you said that, uh, so you said your book is it's on Amazon. Yes. Yes. 
Okay. And uh, uh, so for our listeners, can you uh, can you tell us the name of your book again? Okay. It's A Bow Hunter's Tales. And, of course, it's by Charlie Lamb. All right. L-A-M-B. Gotcha. Thank you. And, I appreciate and it. And that'll... That'll take you right to it. Well, I'll, I'll, and I'll track it down and throw a, a link in the, in the show notes. And, and on that same topic, I guess, um, let's say that, uh, enough interest is, is gathered that, uh, people might want another, another run of, of books printed. Um, how do you, you know, is there a, is there an email you'd like people to email you? Would you like me to, to give, you know, the, the podcast email and, and I'll just, forward those to you or how would you like to do well, that you could you could do it that way or you know, i'll certainly give you my my email address that's not a problem and uh it's charles t as in tom charles t lamb at CenturyTel, c-e-n-t-u-r-y-t-e-l dot net and I do have that email address and I'll make sure to throw that in the show notes as well so there you have it folks if you if you had not read this book, it is a it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, if you if you're like me and you prefer a printed copy, be sure to drop Charlie a, an email and let him know you're interested, and maybe we can generate enough interest for you to have another run of these things, Charlie. Because like I said, it's it is a it's just a great book. It belongs on every bow hunter's bookshelf, in my humble opinion. Well, and the, and if they get the book, then they they can figure out what that chapter is about. <laughs> Absolutely. We didn't tell a whole lot. We've got a lot of people sitting back going, what in the world are they doing with jackrabbits? It's so interesting, but it's well worth the read. Well, Charlie, I, I'm like Nick. I really, really do appreciate you sitting down with us. And uh, obviously, I'm, I know there's a lot more tales here. So I'm going to keep in touch with you and, and we'll figure out a we'll figure out a way maybe after after hunting season, we can, we can get on here and show, share some stories from, from this year and seasons past. How about that? That sounds great. I'd love to do that. All right. Well, thank you so much, sir. You have a, a great afternoon. Nick, until the next time, man, I always enjoy talking with you, and uh, we'll be in touch real soon. Okay. Bye, guys. Take care. See ya.